All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, I feel like I just saw you, like, very recently. You did. You did. (laughs) Well, you know, Josh and I, unfortunately, um, you do have to deal with me on occasion uh, whenever we do these recordings, and you have to put up with my text messages and all those kinds of things. But that's what friends are for, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was good. We, uh, so for our listeners, we recorded an episode earlier this morning, another episode earlier this morning that we were excited about. So Marty and I have been hanging out a lot today, yeah. which is cool. And yesterday, yesterday was Mother's Day. And so I got to honor my mom. I got to honor my wife uh, with our four kids. And uh, believe it or not, here in the middle of May, it actually snowed a little bit here um, throughout the day. Like it was like... It was raining and pouring and, you know, so what it actually forced my wife to do, my wife is not, a, she's a, she likes to get things done. She likes to be outside doing yard work or whatever. So it just forced her on Mother's Day, like to just sit and relax for a little bit. Probably probably might be a good thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let Kaylin get some pampering. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. She got breakfast made for her. She got lunch made for her. She had dinner made for her and she got some chocolate truffles uh as a gift so she got to sit on the couch and eat chocolate truffles she didn't like what it may do to her figure since she wasn't being very (laughs) active but she got to enjoy the the chocolate truffles anyway so oh goodness that's funny (laughs) yeah well my wife does not have well myself and my wife we do not have any kids yet and neither does my wife have any kids um at all in general (laughs) you have three dogs i do have three dogs so uh, we, uh, we just like kind of like FaceTime and duoed, you know, my mom and, and her mom yesterday and those kind of things. And today we're going to get some steamed crabs and say it's, you know, in honor of, of them, you know, nothing like Maryland steamed crabs. Um, I'll let you enjoy those all by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right I want on. nothing to do with it. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Well, that's good. Cause I'm pretty sure somewhere in the old Testament eating uh, shellfish is not great. And speaking of the Old Testament, we should introduce our guest. Yeah. <laughs> How's that for uh, an introduction? Shellfish <laughs> in the Old great. Testament. <laughs> so with us today is Dr. Carmen Imes. Did I say your last name correctly? You did. Perfect. All right. Carmen, how are you today? I'm great. 
Good. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for hanging out with us and listening us to us talk about crabs. <laughs> <laughs> So Carmen, I did see, I, I saw a few flakes of snow here as well. I, we live in Alberta and okay. yesterday there was a little bit of rain, a little bit of snow, but it was nice enough to go for a hike. So that was cool. Nice. That's always a good thing, especially mm -hmm. way up there in Alberta. That would be an awesome. I would love to come and go hiking up there. Actually, mm -hmm. one day I would, I would love to do a backpacking trip all the way around Hudson Bay. I know Ooh. that would take a really, really, really long yeah. time. And be very difficult to get to, um, but yeah. it's it would be beautiful. I'm mm -hmm. a American Revolution buff, so Hudson Bay has lots of stuff that happened during sure. the Revolutionary War. People think it all happened in the U.S. area, but lots in Canada too. Mm. So, so. <laughs> Marty well, also has a history degree. If you can't tell, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carmen, we have a question that we ask every guest that they, that comes on the podcast. It's really important to us. Um, and so it's silly, but um, who is your favorite ice hockey team? This is this is horrible because I live in Canada, <laughs> and I have no opinion on the matter, and that will actually make me really not liked by my neighbors. So in <laughs> so I live in Three Hills, which is not quite equidistant between Calgary and Edmonton. It's a little closer to Calgary. So I guess if I had to pick one, I'd say Calgary Flames. Have I ever watched a game? No, I have not. <laughs> I like to read. <laughs> right on. That's okay. We've actually had guests that have said, uh, oh, there's a TV series I like that has a hockey team on the, on the TV <laughs> series. And so that's my favorite. Um, and so you're, you're, you're in good company of others that, you know, and actually we had uh, someone on one of Josh's favorite, Bruxy Cavey, lives mm. in Canada also and he yep. said he has he doesn't like hockey at all <laughs> you know I will say I did go to a hockey game um, with my future husband it was like one of our first dates it was a group date and uh, we watched a hockey game I was sitting next to him and then another guy friend was on the other side of him and I and I said Danny you're you're never going to believe this but Heath actually wants to have 12 kids good luck finding a wife because he wants 12 kids and danny said what's wrong with that i've always wanted 15. <laughs> <laughs> i was like and i'm considering dating you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway we've settled on three th we have three kids and that that's worked out just fine so that's my that's my most vivid hockey memory <laughs> well happy mother's day to you as well Thank yes you. happy mother's day <laughs> so uh a, a little bit about just who who are you uh and like what's your faith upbringing what what brings you to the place you're at today sure i am a professor of old testament at prairie college here in three hills alberta um i have always been a follower of jesus i can't remember a time when i wasn't i grew up in the christian reformed church and then uh and then our family moved to a four square church after a while. I've had a lot of different, my husband and I have been a part of a lot of different denominations over the years, um, but always we've looked in whatever neighborhood we're living in, we've always looked for a church where the gospel's being preached and, and people's lives are being changed and there's good sense of community. Um, uh, you know, missional, missional outreach is a, an important thing to us. So yeah, I, I can't point to a time when I ever fell away, walked away from God or went through a, a period of deep questioning. It's always been pretty central. Hmm. Going from CRC to Foursquare, that, would, that must have been quite the change. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, it was even more extreme than that. For, for a couple of years, we were in a wildly charismatic church um, where the Spirit of God was at work and there were healings and people were getting slain in the Spirit and uh, dancing in the aisles and prophetic words. It was a very, very lively place. So that was the whiplash from CRC to charismatic. Yeah. And then when that church um, closed down, we ended up trying to find something in the middle in Foursquare is where we landed. So, <laughs> but I've been Baptist and uh, Methodist and Evangelical Free and non denominational. <laughs> And <laughs> all over the place, all over the map, yeah. right? Yeah, on. we've we've moved a lot because of missions and school, so that's why we've changed churches a lot. Sweet, yeah. cool. Well, um, today, Carmen, the reason we wanted to have you on is to talk to you about your latest book, uh, "Bearing God's Name: Why Sinai Still Matters," uh, which was a great book. I really enjoyed it. Um, I actually read through it uh, pretty quickly, which means. It was really good because it kept my attention. So thank good. you. <laughs> yeah. So just real quick for starters, I think always a, a fun or maybe an important question to ask is why did you write this book? Hmm. When I look around me at the church in North America, at least, I see people who know that they're supposed to read the Bible and obey the Bible, but they often don't know what to do with the Old Testament. And there's even, there's even a movement afoot today to just kind of leave off the Old Testament, unhitch from it. It's not necessary. And so, so I, I saw a, a crying need to help the church re-engage with the Old Testament to help them love it again. I think there are lots of Christians who want to love it, but they don't know how. And there are a lot of parts of the Old Testament that seem objectionable in some way. And I wanted to help people navigate these unfamiliar stories and help them to rediscover its message message. Because I think actually that we need, we need the old Testament. It's not just like an appendix. It's not a, it's not a prequel to the real story that happens in the new Testament. It's, it's an essential part of the story of the people of God. And without it, we can't know who we are. Hmm. Yeah, very much. So I think um, one, one thing I really appreciated about like in the beginning of your book is that you kind of uh, gave a nod to some of those uh, people who uh, kind of struggle or, or have asked questions mm. about the old Testament. Mm. Um, I thought that was really helpful because myself included, uh, there was a period of time when like, I didn't really <laughs> know what to do with the old Testament. Sure. Um, I started, you know, questioning things. Really, the thing for me that I started to have a hard time with was uh, like Canaanite genocide or mm -hmm. Israel conquest, whatever language you prefer. Yeah. Um, and so for me, what kind of helped uh, was two things. One, the Bible Project, uh, which mm -hmm. you referenced in your book, which is awesome. But two, also, I, um, I kind of like hang around the Anabaptist-y kind of, you know, places, I guess. And so the mm -hmm. Jesus hermeneutic. Uh, was really helpful for me. So once um, I could see who Jesus was and then read the Old Testament kind of through that lens, it kind of mm -hmm. helped carry me along and opened me back up to seeing, you know, the point that you're trying to make in your book, which is, wow, the Old Testament is so important mm -hmm. because that story is also our story. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, Paul, when Paul's writing to Timothy in First Timothy uh, 3.16, he tells him all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I remember being in college and we 
studied that passage, and I remember my professor saying, notice he's writing to Timothy and they don't have the New Testament yet. This thing he's saying about scripture is he's applying to the Old Testament. He's, he's talking about Israel's scriptures as God-breathed and useful. And this is written after Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet he's still saying that scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If, if the coming of Jesus meant, oh, we don't need that old stuff anymore, then Paul would not need to say this to Timothy. But he's, he's telling him to embrace the scriptures. And I think we need to learn how to do that too. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things about the Old Testament that um, <clears throat> as I kind of became a Christian in high school and kind of in college, you know, really kind of was, you know, really kind of wrestling with the whole thing, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I, I don't remember being ever told that we only read the New Testament or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I remember kind of feeling like, well, that just seems a lot more relatable to me, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what, I remember going to seminary and one of the professors pointing out, and this was the first time I realized it, that the Old Testament is not put together in chronological order. Mm. Um, and so even like, just, just to kind of put out there, like there is a lot, even just at the very base level of things that really, you know, people don't even realize about yep. the Old Testament. Um, so and I, I think because the words are scary or, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lineage that's put, put forward and it takes a really long time. Mm -hmm. Or one of those Psalms is three lines long, but then the next one is three pages long mm -hmm. and you just don't know what to do with yeah. that extra yeah. information. Um, and so I think, I think a book like this is really important because it brings people back to understanding sort of like what happened with me, you know, well, actually, you know, let's just start at the basics. This is not in chronological order. Here's why it's put together this way mm -hmm. uh, and helping people to start to see that in a different light. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I think that one more nice thing to say <laughs> before, we, before I move on is that I think your, your love and care and passion for the Old Testament, just like flows out of your writing so much mm -hmm. and that was so helpful for me and I know it'd be helpful for our listeners because I can almost guarantee that a lot of our listeners um, are skeptical of the Old Testament as well or have had mm -hmm. problems with it or don't quite know how to wrestle with it and so um, I think your book is so important because like I don't know just the love that you have for the mm -hmm. Old Testament is so uh, obvious in your writing yeah. so well, thank you yeah. I'm glad glad you've had that experience yeah so I think um, one thing that you pointed out early on in your book, and I think it's a very common um, misunderstanding that I know at least I had, or maybe even was taught at some point, mm -hmm. is that the law equals people earning their salvation. So when we talk about, maybe I'll ask you what, what the law is in a second, but the law is people earning their salvation. And mm -hmm. then the cool thing about Jesus is he makes our salvation free. So all that law stuff is silly and stupid. It can go away. That's like a common misunderstanding, right? It is. Yeah. And, and if we think of the law as Israel's means of salvation, like this is how they were getting God to save them, then of course, when we have Jesus who provides salvation for us, then why would we need the law anymore? But we really need, this is why we need to go back to Sinai and say, what's really happening here? And what's, if we read if we read the Old Testament in its context, if we read passages in their context, it really helps solve this. So in the first couple chapters of my book, I say, let's just go back and see where are the Ten Commandments? Where are they located? They're not back in Egypt. God has already set his people free from Egypt. 
and brought them through the wilderness and provided for them before he gives them the law. So the law was never a means of their salvation. It was always a way of, of teaching them what it looks like to live in freedom as his people. And, and if we miss that, if we miss the, the arrangement of the book of Exodus, then we're likely to skew, have a skewed understanding of what the law actually is. Yeah, one, uh, one way that you talked about the law that I found mm -hmm. very helpful, and I actually, I hadn't encountered this idea before, but you talked about the law as being a gift. Mm. And I thought that was really cool because I never mm. thought about it that way. Yeah, before. we don't think of it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so um, you kind of mentioned how like part of why it was a gift is because a lot of the other gods were just kind of quiet all the time, mm. right? But the law is kind of different than that. Sure. When we read ancient Near Eastern texts and we read about people's relationship with their deities or their understanding of who they worshipped, there's you can really sense a, their anxiety. They're trying to figure out how to please the gods. And that's crucially important because the gods are the ones responsible for fertility. So if their crops are going to grow and they're going to be able to have children who don't die at, you know, die at birth, and who survive to adulthood and who can care for them in their old age, then they need the God's favor over their land and over their families. And so there's a, a great deal of anxiety around this where, where people are, are trying to figure out what do the gods want from me? And if, I'm, if my crops aren't growing or if my children are dying, then I must be doing something wrong. So what do they want from me to make it right? And so there's a, there's a great deal of guesswork that goes on in other ancient Near Eastern religions. And with Israel, it's so different because they come to Sinai. God takes the initiative to rescue them from Egypt. He brings them to Sinai and he says, I'm the God who loves you. I've chosen you. You're mine. I'm, I've chosen you out of all the nations to be my treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He, now here's how to live as my people. And he tells them exactly what's expected of them. And he tells them exactly how to make things right when they screw up, because he knows they will. So part of the grace is, I love this part of Exodus, that everybody knows the golden calf story, where Moses is up on the mountain, and the people are down in the valley making a golden calf and worshiping it. They're breaking the commandments, you know, right out of the gate. But what's fascinating to me is that Moses is up on the mountain getting the blueprints for building the tabernacle. And why do we need a tabernacle? Because that's where you make sacrifices for sin so that God can forgive you. God is already anticipating their need for forgiveness before they've committed this sin with the golden calf. And so sometimes people read Old Testament law and they think, oh, God's standards were so high. They... You know, it was impossible to keep the law. Well, actually, God's standards are quite reasonable. Not murdering and not committing adultery. Those are reasonable commands. And he's provided a way to make things right if you screw up. And so I, f I feel like we've misconstrued law and given it such a negative view. And it just, we lose the, we lose the fact that it's a gift. That it's, mm -hmm. this is... The, these people, what you don't see at Sinai is the people going, oh, man, yeah. I sure hate being an Israelite. 
I sure would. Now, we do see complaining in the wilderness. They do complain when they're hungry and they want to go back to Egypt. So I, that aside, they don't complain about the law. And when Moses talks about it with them, he he's suggests that the other nations are going to be jealous of this law. In Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter four, he's like, when other nations get a load of this, they're going to be like, oh, these people are so wise and understanding. Look, look at their law. So this is a situation, this is not a situation in which God is giving them new chains. You know, this is not a ball and chain. He has set them free from slavery and the law is their means of living well in freedom. If we could recover that, that'd be, we'd be a long way closer to what the Old Testament is trying to teach us. Yeah, mm. most definitely. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, everything you're kind of saying to me um, sounds a lot like wisdom. <laughs> and yeah. so that kind of leads me to like the next, like our, our next point here, just how, how, how would you see the law as wisdom? And, and mm. where does that come from? I think one of my favorite uh, Old Testament books is Proverbs. Um, when I was a youth pastor a few years ago, I put together a curriculum on Proverbs, but we really yeah. wanted to focus not on, you know, Proverbs as self-help or, mm. you know, the Old Testament as character development, but instead, yeah. how does this lead us to Jesus and what does this teach us about, mm. you know, not only ourselves, but, you know, about the overall biblical narrative. Yeah. Um, and so what is, how does, how does the law and wisdom, how do all those things work together? Yeah, so it's it's only recently that scholars have been talking more about that i'm hearing scholars talk more about the law as wisdom law does not usually equate wisdom in our mind we don't put the two concepts together and that's because the word law in our culture is applied legislatively we have law codes we have a court system if if you if you violate a particular law say you know the speeding law then there's a certain infraction um this is where my vocabulary is falling short on me. Um, <laughs> if you violate, because because I'm not a, I'm not a legal scholar in the sense of modern law, but like if there's a code on the books about speeding and you break that by speeding and you get pulled over, there's a specific penalty attached, certain number of dollars per miles, you know, per hour over the limit that you can be charged with that, and you have to go through a court process to appeal that or whatever. That's not exactly how Old Testament law works. And so first we need to go back and say, is law the right word for this? Mm. And then what did they mean by it? So the, the Hebrew word is Torah that describes this collection of laws. And Torah is broader than law. It, it would be better translated as teaching or instruction. So God's teaching or instruction then includes a whole list of ways that God is calling his people to live. And it, in, in that way, it's similar to the book of Proverbs because Proverbs is a list of wise ways of living, right? So this, mm -hmm. there's an ancient impulse to catalog, like to have this exhaustive catalog of things. That's a function of wisdom. So, so back to Sinai, when God is teaching his people how to live in freedom, he's giving them catalogs of, of things that he wants them to do. To say that their wisdom does not mean this is optional or this is a, you know, choose your own, pick and choose the ones you like. But it's, it's a way of recalibrating our understanding of these laws so that we don't think of them as legislation. They didn't have a court system like we did. They weren't bound to give a certain penalty 
for each one. But instead, it's like God is painting a picture of a or a paradigm of what the covenant-keeping Israelite should look like. So this is what faithfulness to God looks like in all of these different areas. It's like a catalog of wise ways to live. So it's actually going to hurt you to violate any of these. It's, it's going to make life worse for you and worse for your neighbors if you violate these. Yeah, that, that was a really helpful um, point. Like the section in your book where you talked about that was, was very helpful for me. It kind mm-hmm. of shined uh, a new light on the law, most mm-hmm. definitely. It also, um, it reminded me too, like, even when we, and we'll talk about this in a second, but even when we look at like the Ten Commandments and you have something like um, keeping the Sabbath, it takes wisdom to know what that means, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like yeah. it's built into it almost. I think, yeah, that's a good point because the laws, we tend to think of laws as like a checklist, like, well, I haven't killed anyone and I haven't committed adultery and I haven't stolen anything, so I'm good. Yeah. But in fact, each one of the laws is supposed to be deliberated upon and applied more broadly than its specific mm. items. So, so you shall not steal. Well, yeah, don't steal, but also... Um, you know, you're not taking your neighbor's property, but you're also, what What are other ways that we could steal from someone else without actually taking their property, stealing their reputation or um, stealing their peace by harassing them or whatever? I'm, I think each of the laws invite us to reflect on how to love our neighbors well and how to protect their rights. And so that's why when Jesus is asked about the commands in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said, don't do X, but I tell you, don't even do Y. You know, mm-hmm. And he, he uses this formula to sort of rethink the way that they're responding to the instructions at Sinai. Instead of a checklist, it applies much more broadly. So you think you're good because, just because you haven't slept with another woman? No, anyone who's looked lustfully at a woman has committed adultery. So he, I don't think he's now raising the bar and saying, uh, Sinai wasn't strict enough, I'm going to be even stricter. I think he's actually calling them back to the intent of the Sinai teaching, which is always, it's always been about the heart. Mm-hmm. And saying it's not necessarily even attainable necessarily all by yourself, mm. you know, to be, to live into this perfection, you know, I mean, or, we need, or this seeming perfection. We need God in we our need lives. God's help. Yep. Yeah, the the last of the commands is the command not to covet. And coveting is by nature a heart issue. How do you take someone to court for coveting? What would be the evidence that they have coveted? And this is where I think we can see really clearly that the law did not function legislatively for them, that it was always a heart issue and and an invitation to wise deliberation about, about how can I please God in everything I do and everything I think even. Yeah. yeah, yeah, most definitely. And so let's uh, let's jump then, since we've we've referenced it a couple of times to the Ten Commandments. So I remember, <laughs> I remember. I don't know if this is like, uh, um, what's the word, like sacrilegious or not? But there was some movie or clip I saw at some point where like Moses had all the commandments, and he's like, with these fifteen, and then one of the tablets fell, <laughs> and he looks down, he looks up with these Ten Commandments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
it was dear. it was in some goofy movie uh but i always that's whenever i hear 10 commandments i think of that for some reason <laughs> there's a lot of great cartoons out there with moses and his commandments like moses with the two tablets and he's got like two ipads <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. or or moses has got his hands full with these 10 and he's like um he looks around him at all the other commands god's just given he's like um i'll get the rest of these later <laughs> i'll carry two at a time are you, Moses was the first one to upload something or download something from the cloud. Because yes. <laughs> yes. Onto, his, onto his tablets. Yes. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, an interesting thing though, that you said in, in the book about the 10 commandments was that maybe a better word, a better way rather to talk about them would be the 10 words. And what do you, so what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so if you look in your English Bibles, they, it, they're referred to as the Ten Commandments a couple times. But if you look in Hebrew, they're never called the Ten Commandments. They're always called the Ten Words. And in Hebrew, the word word, davar, has a broader range of meaning than what we think of when we say word in English. So it could be the Ten Things or the Ten Matters, the Ten Items on the List. Hmm. Um, but it's a little broader than commands. And I think one of the things I talk about in, in the book that is probably the biggest misconception about the Ten Commandments is that there were two tablets because all the commands didn't fit on one. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I think it's actually difficult to find an image online if you're searching for artwork about the Moses and the Ten Commandments. It's difficult to find an image where there are actually two tablets rather than like this McDonald's arches connected thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where that comes from. So find one with two tablets that don't say one through five and six through 10, you know, one through five on the one and six through 10 on the other. Or um, there's actually long debates in church history about which ones belong on each tablet. Um, some people divide them into these are the commands that are, relate to God. And these are the commands that relate to other people. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think that works. The way these are given at Sinai they are covenantal stipulations that the whole community is willingly entering into this covenant with Yahweh. They're agreeing to these stipulations. And if you violate any one of them, it's an affront to God. And if you violate any one of them, it's dangerous for your neighbors. Because as a community, they're all entering into a covenant with Yahweh. So if I worship another God, that would seem to modern readers to, to be a relationship just between me and God. But me worshiping another God actually puts the entire community at risk of God's mm. wrath. And we see that in the book of Joshua, when they go and fight the battle uh, of Jericho, and then one of, the, one of the warriors takes some pretty stuff he finds that he doesn't want to destroy. They're supposed to destroy everything, but he takes home some gold and this beautiful robe, and he buries them under his tent the entire army loses the next battle because of his unfaithfulness. So every commandment relates to my community. Every commandment relates to God. Um, so then why do we have two tablets? And I would argue that we need to look back to ancient Near Eastern history. And here's where archaeology can help us. We now know that ancient treaties were made in duplicate form. Like they would make two copies of the treaty on stone tablets and give one to each party. So when Moses comes down the mountain and he's carrying two stone tablets, everybody would have known, oh, we have just entered into a treaty. 
Now, this is a unique kind of treaty because it's not a treaty with another nation. It's a treaty with a deity, which is basically unheard of in ancient times. <laughs> so this is unique, um, but it, it's a treaty nonetheless. And so they, they have this sense of, of entering into a formal agreement that's going to require their loyalty for the rest of their lives. And that's why we have two tablets, not because we couldn't fit everything on one. Mm. That, so it's like, it's this beautiful picture of like a mutual commitment, some kind mm-hmm. of relationship mm-hmm. uh, together. That's, yeah. that's one, again, another way that is way more helpful <laughs> to think about yeah. the one that makes it so much more beautiful yeah. um, than these caricatures that a lot yep. of us get stuck in. I think the closest example we have to that in modern times is a a marriage, a wedding ceremony, Hmm, where you have two people entering into a lifetime commitment to each other. I mean, we might make a contract or even enter into a treaty with another nation, or a sales contract or a treaty. Those those are somewhat similar, but really the marriage covenant is the closest analogy, because I'm saying I am yours and you are mine, like exclusively so from here on out. As long as I live, you are my husband and, and I am your wife. And so at Sinai, God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And those are the two halves of a covenant commitment that's going to carry them forward. They're basically married from now on. Sweet. So like, um, one thing that I'm trying to remember, I don't, I don't remember if it was in your book or not. So forgive me, but I remember reading about this idea of the treaty but um, between God and um, people. And like, there's this uh, imagery or what, what people used to do when they would make a treaty is like two kings would like get an animal and cut it in half and then yes. separate it and walk through it together. Yes. But there's, is, in the Old Testament, there's actually this image of that, but only God is the one that walks through Right. Yes. Yeah. This comes. So this doesn't happen in Exodus at Sinai, but it is in Genesis in chapters 12 and 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. I would say this is the same covenant that's happening at Sinai. I don't think they're two different covenants, but it's at Sinai. They're reaffirming that covenant with the full nation. Now, now they're going to be as a nation, his covenant people. Mm -hmm. So with, but you're right with Abraham, the, the animals are cut in half. And normally when two people walk through, it's a way of saying, may this be done to me. If I break this covenant, like cut me in half, if I, (laughs) you know, don't keep up my end of the deal. But here, Abraham in this vision sees a smoking pot and a torch coming through the pieces and he's just watching it happen and i have heard that taught as well that that this is god demonstrating his own commitment to the covenant um and i've even heard and i think this is really really fun that this is a precursor or like a hint of what's to come with the exodus story where god is the he is leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night so this this pillar of cloud lights up at night, just just like we had a smoking pot and a torch. Um, so the smoking pot would have kind of made a pillar of cloud above it, right? And then this torch would have done the same. So perhaps he's he's saying ahead of time, like, I'm going to lead you through the through the sea and out onto onto the other side, I'm going to set you free. It's cool mm. stuff. It's very yeah. cool. Sweet. Um, so, hmm, 
I'm trying to think where I want to go. Because I, wa- I wanted to ask you a question about having images. Mm-hmm. But I think, well, let's do that real quick. Just, and then we'll go sure. to the, the second commandment. Because that's really, uh, I think that's a really fun part of your book. And um, perhaps my favorite, my favorite bit. But um, so like one of the Ten Commandments, well, so basically there's some Christians that say, yes, you can have pictures of Jesus or no, you can't. And so like, yes. I have a buddy of mine uh, who is confessionally reformed and like is not cool with the fact that I have like a picture of Jesus in my house. Yes. Like, so, and he says it's in the 10 commandments. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Yes. <laughs> this is a good question. I say in the book, if you show me the inside of your sanctuary, I will tell you how you count the commands because there's actually disagreement in church history over how to number, how to count to 10. And some traditions count the command not to make any idols as its own command. That would include the reformed tradition. And some include that only with the first command. So not having other gods and not making idols are one command. They okay. go together. So in the Catholic tradition, they, they read those two as one command. And therefore, you can have pictures of Jesus because that's not violating, you're not worshiping another God. Like, it, it's not facilitating the worship of other gods. But in the Reformed tradition, it's its own line item. So then it's really especially important not to have any image of God. So my, I grew up in the Reformed church. My grandmother was very firm on this as well. And she was pretty distressed when I wanted to buy a nativity scene to set up at Christmas time because that little that little baby Jesus was a was an idol in her mm, mind or okay. or an image. You weren't supposed to make images of God, and there's an image of God. So I remember years ago when we had this conversation, going taking her to Deuteronomy chapter four, verses fifteen and following, where where God explains to the people why he has told them not to make images. And his reason was, you saw no form on the mountain. Therefore, don't try to make a picture of me because you don't know what I look like. Um, and, and so he tells them, you know, I don't want you worshiping any created things that blurs the distinction between creator and creation to make an image and then worship that. But, but I think there's a difference in the New Testament because when we come to the Gospels, God does take human form. Jesus comes as God incarnate. And so the, the prohibition of making pictures of God is now superseded by God has sent us his own picture of him. Now, should I worship a picture of Jesus? No, I shouldn't. And I should always recognize this is an artistic rendition, but it's not, it's not Jesus himself. And I, so therefore I can't worship it. But, um, but I think Catholics would, would argue they're not worshiping these pictures. They're venerating images, but not worshiping them. And I, I do think that's a valid distinction to make. Sure. As, as a child, I grew up Catholic. Um, okay. And um, I remember when I first entered a Protestant church, my sophomore year of high school, that was the very first thing that I noticed, that mm. the cross that was up on the platform didn't have Jesus on it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it made absolutely no sense to me at all yeah. um, until I asked and the, the person that explained it to me, um, they didn't use, you know, any sort of theology to try to make it clear to me. They said, well, on the third day, Jesus rose again. 
And yeah. so he's not on the cross anymore. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then <laughs> later on, the theology and like the actuality behind their their reasoning for that. Mm-hmm. This was a this was an evangelical free missionary okay. free church. So it, it was yeah. much more very center of the line. Uh, yeah modern Christianity, but um, it was, that was the most distinct thing to me about going mm-hmm. from the Catholic uh, church, you know, a few years before to entering a Protestant church and you walk in the room and you're expecting yeah. to see, you know, stained glass windows and, you know, candles lit and you're expecting mm-hmm. to see a priest in a robe and, a, and Jesus front yep. and center on the cross. And instead yep. there's a guy in a suit and, <laughs> and there's no stained glass windows. And so they have, you know, curtains that come down by the push of a button and they go back up again later. And all of those things came together for me in like a very differing. So mm-hmm. it, it, that was a very uh, significant change for me. But, you know, as, as you're talking about that, a lot of that all makes for a lot of sense to me yeah. too. So, so yeah. I'm one of those who would who would count those first two items on the list as one command as well. And I, I okay. explain why in the book. Um, I think there's a literary sandwich going on, literary chiasm. Um, but I would say for ancient Near Eastern people, you would not have an image unless you were going to worship it. Mm. And you would not worship a God without an image. Like the two went hand in hand. So to say not to have other idols is a way of reinforcing what's already been said, which is don't worship other gods. So. Yeah. Sweet. So that makes that the, so that makes that the first command. And then the one you want to ask me about next is actually what I call the second command. Yeah. Which I think is so cool because you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but like your dissertation was basically about this idea, right? Yes. Um, Of the second command. And this, I remember when I first heard, this idea, this is where things clicked for me. This is when Mm -hmm. in this idea that we're about to talk about, this is when I was like, holy crap, the Old Testament makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) This is where it worked for me. And so what I realized was the second commandment, not using God's name in vain, isn't just some good old fashioned cussing, which is what Marty and I do for fun on the weekends. Uh, (laughs) So it's (laughs) just kidding. So it's not that it's, it's, Not necessarily um, just saying, you know, people, I mean, people know, but it's not. Yes, that. right, it's, right. It's bigger than that. Yeah, this is, this is not like you are, you know, doing a big project. You've been up all night writing a paper and then you realize you haven't saved it yet and you go to hit save and boom, your computer crashes. And the thing that comes out of your mouth is, oh, fill right. in the blank, right? right? That's not <laughs> what this commandment is talking about. Um, so the command for those of you who don't have your Bibles out in front of you right now, is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or you shall not misuse the name of the Lord um, your God. And so over the, over the years, most interpreters have thought that this has something to do with either good old-fashioned cussing, like you said, <laughs> or taking an oath in God's name. And then not keeping your oath. There's actually mm. 23 different ways it's been interpreted that I've counted. Um, wow. but most of those fall into those general categories of um, spoken misuse of God's name somehow. And what I argue in my dissertation is that that's not actually what this verse is talking about. The Hebrew doesn't say anything about speech. If you translate it kind of woodenly, it's you shall not bear or carry the name of Yahweh your God in vain. 
So most interpreters have come to that and said, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. We don't carry names. So that must be a, a figurative way of talking about something else. And I, I, I said, well, what if I, what if I could study this and see whether it does make sense? What, what if this does make sense on its own? What if we do carry God's name? And so in, in the close context of this command at Sinai, just a few chapters away, are the instructions for how to dress the high priest. So there's all those boring tabernacle instructions that nobody likes to read. And then the clothes that the high priest is supposed to wear, and probably most of you didn't do your devotions in that chapter this morning. But, but what's fascinating about it is that the high priest is wearing on his chest 12 gemstones. Each one has the name, one of the names of the 12 tribes inscribed on it. And then on each shoulder, he has a big onyx stone with six tribal names inscribed. So, so he actually has names on him. And the text says, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel before Yahweh. So he's actually literally using the same, same word in Hebrew, nasa, to bear or carry. Aaron is carrying names, and the people are being told not to carry God's name in vain. So to, to further put those two ideas together, Aaron also has, the high priest also has on his forehead, this golden medallion that's inscribed with the name of Yahweh. It says, holy belonging to Yahweh, right on his forehead. So he is bearing the name of the tribes as, his, as their representative, and he's bearing Yahweh's name on his forehead as Yahweh's representative. So he represents God to the people. He represents the people to God. He's an intermediary, and he's the high priest, of course. That's what a high priest does. But God has already told the people in chapter 19 of Exodus that they are to be a kingdom of priests. He's already told them they're priests. So perhaps we should look at the priests to find out what their job is, what the job of the whole nation is. And in fact, that's what we find. Um, Moses describes the whole nation in the book of Deuteronomy as a people wholly belonging to Yahweh. So what the high priest does physically, they're supposed to do in a metaphorical way. That is, they've been stamped with God's name. He's claimed them as his own. They belong to him. Now they're supposed to live in such a way that people can look at them and see what God is like. And that's why we need all the rest of the other laws, because this is fleshing out what it would look like to live as God's representative among the nations, to be a people that are holy and set apart and honoring to him. Yeah, so that, like, can you see why that would have clicked everything yes. in and, and made yeah. sense? Um, especially, too, because my favorite uh, theologian, and I remember Marty used to tell me, Josh, there's more theologians than just N.T. Wright. Because <laughs> I would always talk, yeah, yeah, I would always talk about N.T. Wright, but he is my favorite. Mm -hmm. And he always talks about this idea of, you know, being an image bearer and being created to uh, reflect the character of God into all of creation mm -hmm. and then, you know, reflect creation praises back to God. Yeah. And how like sin distorts that. And so I was like, okay, that makes sense. But then like you come along and show like, okay, here in this, in the 10 commandments, this idea here, like to me that it like, it fits yes. so well. It does. And when you, if you count the commands the way I do, we just talked about the first command, not to worship other gods and make idols of them. 
and then the second command not to misrepresent him that right there re-encapsulates the covenant formula that i was just talking about i will be your god so don't worship other gods and you will be my people so represent me well live like you're my people so these first two commands are basically in a nutshell the whole of the covenant mm -hmm. and everything else is just fleshing out sample ways of how that might look and you're right, once this piece gets put into place properly, the whole missional theme of the Old Testament just comes into focus. And you see, this is everywhere. This actually runs through the entire Old Testament into the New Testament. Jesus is talking about it. Paul's talking about it. John's talking about it in Revelation. It's, it's like you can't unsee it once you've seen it. Yeah, it's like the whole story. Mm -hmm. That's now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and one of the things that's been, um, I actually had an experience um, maybe a few years ago where I was kind of dealing with, you know, it was just personal things and trying to kind of figure out where I stood in God's kingdom and what he wanted to do with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, one one of the things that a mentor said to me is, um, stop worrying about what people here think about you and start worrying about uh, mm -hmm. what God thinks of you and mm -hmm. what, like, who does God call you? And yeah. what does God call you? Yeah. And so that kind of leads to this next question: Is um, you know, in, in the in the in the confines of Sinai, what does it mean to bear God's name? Hmm. Yeah, it means to live faithfully as His covenant people, to to live so that others can watch you and find out what God is like. Um, the way you do business with your neighbor is a reflection of the character of God. Mm. Um, the, the way you treat your employees, your members of your household reflects God's character. The way you, um, yeah, the way you consider any area of your life. And that's why the law is so comprehensive. It, it doesn't cover every, every possible scenario in life, but it covers every area of life. Our family relationships, our work relationships, our relationships with other nations, like it's all in there. Um, what we wear how we how we worship what kind of sacrifices we bring like ever there isn't anything that is untouched by this command to represent god well mm. and, and it's one of those things where uh you know israel never really did a great job with that <laughs> i right. mean they had they had moments right. where you they know had moments, moments. Hey, it looks like they may actually do this right, and then they make the golden calf, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> um, but you know, then then we get Jesus, and obviously Jesus did that perfectly, yeah. um, and lived into God's name, yes. um, and to and to bear His name. Uh, but then, as is as our job today, I think I think one of the things that's always made so, so much sense to me in connecting the New and the Old Testaments um, mm -hmm. is. You know, as Jesus is looking to bear the name of God, and he did it perfectly, and we are to follow that lineage just as Jesus followed a lineage too. Yes. And Jesus understood that lineage. He understood, yep. obviously, being the son of God, this is not, you know, oh, well, I was born of this person and this person mm -hmm. and this person. And so there's just the, the carnal nature of it. There's obviously, mm. you know, there's more to who Jesus was, of course. Yeah. Um, but you know, if I guess it's like the best, the best opportunity for us to live into God's name is to follow Jesus, mm -hmm. who is the only one that ever did it right, instead right. of trying to follow others who never did it right. Right. Yeah. And Jesus is the one who teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name, mm -hmm. which is so mind blowing to connect this back with the theme. I always thought of that as Jesus's 
saying, wow, God, you're great or something. But no, he, he's actually asking for God's name to be consecrated or set apart or made holy. Well, isn't mm. God's name already holy? Well, not anymore, because the people have been bearing his name in a, in a horrible way. Like people, the, the, the nations have been looking at them and saying, oh, Yahweh must not be a very strong God, because look, his people have been carted off into exile. Our God must be stronger than Yahweh. And so by their very covenantal disobedience, they have been bad, they've given bad PR to Yahweh. <laughs> and now Yahweh actually has to clean up his reputation among the nations. And Jesus is now in prayer, committing himself to that project, saying, wow. hallowed be your name. He's committing himself to being a name bearer who bears mm. God's name with honor. Yeah. Well, and so continue that prayer today, because <laughs> yeah, I feel right. like the church still is bearing oh. God's name poorly yeah. <laughs> so often yeah. yeah well and so i guess the you know you've you've obviously um done this very well but i think just to in in like the conversation over the last 30 or so minutes um the real question i guess is um why do we need the old testament mm. <laughs> i don't think that we can truly know who we are or what we're called to do in the world without the Old Testament, because this is where the, the command is so much bigger than just a rule to check off. At mm -hmm. Sinai, the people are finding out that they are God's treasured possession, his representatives among the nation. So they belong to him. That's who they are. And therefore, they're representing him. Like their job is to represent him. So everything about their identity and vocation is solidified and clarified at Sinai. And none of that changes in the New Testament. When Peter is writing to the church scattered throughout Asia Minor in, in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, you are, but you are a chosen people, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. He uses the same titles that were used at Sinai in Exodus 19 mm. to apply to the Israelites. He's telling the church, you still have a job to do. You're still God's representatives among the nations. So we can't, just, we can't just say, well, that part's done now. We have Jesus. All we have to think about is Jesus. Jesus is who he is because of how he connects with that story. And for us to really understand what he accomplished, we've got to know that story. Yeah. So like if I could take a crack at it, perhaps it's because in the New Testament, when the, you know, the, the covenant is opened up to include not just the Jews any longer, but now the Gentiles mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So now Israel's story is our story as well. It is. Yeah. It is. And so yeah, that's the idea. There's this really strange thing that happens in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is with the people. Um, so the whole, there's a whole generation that's died in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness, right? Between mm -hmm. Sinai and the plains of Moab. Um, they haven't entered into the promised yet, land yet. The, the people who were unfaithful have died. Now it's their children's generation who are getting ready to enter the promised land. And Moses consistently, as he addresses them and tells the story of Sinai to these people to remind them of all this, he consistently talks about them as you. You were at Sinai. You heard the voice. You did this. You said this. And I said this to you and you replied this. And it's really bizarre. The first time I noticed it, I thought, is he, is he getting, struggling a little with amnesia? Like, does he, has he forgotten that whole generation died in the wilderness? Who does he think he's talking to? And then I realized this is theologically significant. He mm. is seeing this new generation as the people who were at Sinai. Mm. He, he's, he looks at them. The, the word I learned from Greg Beale to, 
to describe that as corporate continuity. There's mm. the people of God continuous through time includes any person in any generation who's faithful to the covenant. And that means it extends all the way into the New Testament and to you and me. Mm. So, so when Moses is saying you were at Sinai, I think Peter is picking that up in his letter and saying you were at Sinai. Like this <laughs> is your story. This is not just like your grandparents' faith. Or, or these other, this faith of these other people, this is your faith. This is your mm -hmm. story. And he, he understands that if they're going to be successful in following the covenant, they need to see it as their own, that they have entered into a real covenantal relationship with Yahweh. There are no second generation covenant members. Mm. Every generation <laughs> is a first generation covenant member. Nice. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. So one, one last thing uh, that I wanted to ask you um, is there's this idea, right, that Jesus talks about being the fulfillment of the law. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I think about that, I know people argue about, okay, well, if Jesus fulfilled the law, that means ditch the Old Testament law. But then some people say, well, no, that's not what fulfilled means. Yeah. There's like arguments about this. Yeah. Um, and so first, would be like, what, what do you think when you hear Jesus say fulfillment of the law, what do you think that means? Mm -hmm. And then the, the sub question, or maybe the question behind that question is, are we still tied to the 10 commandments today? You mm -hmm. and I and, and Marty and our listeners. Yeah. Great questions. So when I hear Jesus say, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, I think, oh, so Jesus coming is not, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. He's not sweeping away everything that happened in the Old Testament and that now we're going with plan B. When Jesus comes, he's coming to do the very thing Israel was called to do at Sinai. He's leaning into his vocation as a covenant member and he's showing us how it should be done. So there's that for starters. But then we could say, well, now that he's done it, I don't have to. But if you read the New Testament, Jesus is very clearly calling his disciples to love one another, to love their neighbor as themselves. That's from Leviticus chapter 19. To love God with all their heart. That's covenantal faithfulness. That's the first commandment. You know, Jesus is consistently asking people to live in such a way that's consistent with their status as covenant members. And hmm. each of the New Testament authors are doing the same. You know, most of Paul's letters, the first half is exposition and the second half is exhortation of here's how you should now live he's telling them all the sorts of things that were spelled out in the law about being a good citizen and and being loving and and reconciling and acting with justice and all of that leaving sin behind so it's not as though now that jesus fulfilled the law no, none of us has to think about it we can just throw off any restraints and do whatever we feel like the New Testament is very clear that we actually can't do whatever we feel like, that we need to be daily made new and have our minds renewed so that we can live into our identity as the people of God. Hmm. So the law does not apply to us in quite the same way that it did to the people at Sinai because we're in a different culture and there are things that have changed in Christ. So we're not going to set up the tabernacle. We're not going to start making sacrifices. I don't think we need to be eating kosher diets. Um, because those, the kosher diet was put into place to separate Israel from the nations, to, mm. make, to set them apart ethnically. And it's very clear in the book of Acts that that season has ended 
and that Gentiles are now free to come into the covenant and have table fellowship with Jews, Jewish followers of Jesus. So I don't think we need to be eating kosher anymore. Um, we don't need to be circumcising our children anymore um, unless we have, you know, unless there are other <laughs> cultural factors. Like there's not religious factors that would motiv motivate that, right? Mm, yeah. Um, so that was the, was that both parts of your question? Yeah, yeah, I think okay. so. You did yeah. a great job. Yeah, so <laughs> that, that makes me feel so good too because I was getting really nervous about eating these steamed crabs here later. <laughs> And I know there's a, a, a rule against that. So I wanted to make sure we were good. <laughs> so now, you know, there's no rule against it and there's no obligation for it. Well, I think you God. asked, I think your the second part of your question was, do we still need to keep the 10 commandments? And right, I'd say yeah. we get to keep the 10 commandments. Okay. Like, can you think of a better ethic or, or a, a better way to, to organize society so that mm. I'm concerned with the rights of my neighbor, with mm -hmm. the welfare of my neighbor? Mm -hmm. No, we should continue to protect each other's right to life and right to marriage and right to property and right to a good reputation. We should continue to worship only Yahweh. We should continue to represent him well. We should continue to take a day off every week because that's a gift from God. <laughs> we should continue to honor our parents. Like these are all still really good. Are we, are we bound by them? Um, I would, I think of them more as the, the boundary fences within which we choose to live a life that of human flourishing like mm. human flourishing is possible within these boundaries mm. there's no boundaries around my marriage covenant if it's a free-for-all then i don't have the the joy and freedom of a committed marriage mm -hmm. in the middle right so yeah. so i don't think of it again as chains but as like in the book i use the illustration of a fence around a playground that keeps the kids from accidentally running into the street while they're playing tag. You can actually have more fun playing tag if you don't have to worry about getting hurt, getting run over by cars. So yeah. Yeah. I don't think it like actually takes the fun out of it. I think it actually makes it more fun. Mm. Yeah, and all those all those things you just read, you know, that you just put out there, those were all the ways that Jesus taught us to live, to love right. our neighbor as ourself. And right. he he didn't he didn't come and say, well, you know, you used to not have to love your, you used to have to love your neighbor, but now, but now, but, but now I tell you, <laughs> if your neighbor, if your neighbor gets a lawnmower, make sure you buy a better lawnmower. And if, oh, you know, yeah. if your neighbor gets a cool grill, make sure you build a bigger deck and you have a better grill. Like, yeah, yeah. That, um, but that, that happens to be, I guess, you know, you're in Canada, but it's probably very similar to the American dream, right? Is, yep. to, is to keep up with the Joneses and whoever's yeah. your neighbor. And obviously I'm speaking about actual neighbors, but the idea is yeah. it, it transcends to everybody. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Up here in Canada, I think the American dream is still alive and well. It's just, it just tends to be a little quieter. It's <laughs> a little... <laughs> Well, before we sign off, I wanted to ask a question, um, Old Testament related, and uh, forgive me, sometimes I like to do this, Josh gets really mad at me later on, but I, I like to do it anyway. Oh yeah, you can see um, how much anger and fury I have inside of me. Um, <laughs> you this, do have this, a dinosaur on your shirt. I do. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Um, my, my kids love that sweater, by the way, whenever they see Josh wearing it. Uh, <laughs> so my question is, there's, this is not about Sinai. Uh, this is, this is a more, a little bit older. Um, the story in Genesis when um, Abraham and Sarah are in the wilderness or they're in the desert and the three men come to visit mm. them. Mm -hmm. um, and I've often heard it taught that those three men are God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. Uh, but then I've also heard it taught that though that's not actually the case, you know, but, but no one seems to settle on like 
who these people are. Um, yeah. You know, there's the there's the evidence where where Sarah says Sarah refers to one of them as my lord. Yeah. Um, but then others say, well, if you look at the way people spoke in the 1600s, you know, but it's like, well, that's not that's not what we're talking yeah. about here. So, yeah. I mean, who are these people? I, again, I I get it that it's outside the confines of our conversation, mm-hmm. but I just it's something that always sticks with me. Old Testament related. Yeah, there's definitely a divine visitation in that story. Definitely, Mm -hmm. Abraham sees himself to be in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. I am quite hesitant to call it a manifestation of the Trinity um, in that there's three three figures come at first, and then it says two go on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and it calls them angels, the two angels. I don't think we have... I think it may be problematic for us to have a pre-incarnate Christ who's already incarnate. Yeah. So to have, you know, Jesus takes on flesh in, in the gospels. I think that's a unique moment where God's taken on human flesh. And so I hesitate to, to find examples of pre-incarnate Christ in the old Testament. I actually find it more. I think sometimes we get into trouble with a low Christology when we're trying to find types of Jesus all over the Old Testament, um, or when we look at the book of Matthew and we call Jesus a new Moses because he's going up on a mountain and he's teaching the law, I would rather say we have Yahweh revealed in the Old Testament, and then we have Yahweh in the flesh in the New Testament. And so Jesus is actually, instead of looking for, oh, Joseph is a type of Christ and Daniel is a type of Christ. No, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Yeah. Um so he he does fulfill Israel's vocation, but he he is also like the coming of God to be with us is much bigger than any type can capture. Yeah, and and I, I think I think where I've always stood on that story is you know it's like you're sort of like you're saying you know if we if we are able to find evidence of Jesus showing up in the flesh in one place in the Old Testament, why is that the only place? Yeah, and, and, yeah, and and you know you have to be able to come to a, a you have to be able to to answer the question. Well, why didn't he show up a bunch of other times in the right, Old Testament? Right, right, right. You know, as a precursor. And so, yeah, I mean, I I've, I've always kind of stood with you on that. But it just was like I said. Anytime I have a conversation about the Old Testament, that's a story that always comes up to me because yeah, I, you know, I think it's easy to teach. Oh, it's three people. It must be the Trinity. Great. Yeah. And then we can leave it there. But yeah. and I think for the you know, unfortunately, we have many people in the church that. Sunday is the only moment that they think about theology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the, the theology they think about is a one on a scale of a thousand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if you teach that, then that's what they go around believing and yeah. they don't have any basis for it. Um, and like Josh and I like to do, we like to have people, you know, rethink the way that they've been taught yep. things, you yep. know, and, and, and re and look and be introspective about these kinds of things. So yeah. that's, that's well, why one, I, one of the, tricky things too is trans a translation issue and that the old testament word for god is elohim Mm -hmm. but elohim is actually a broader category of spiritual beings that includes angels than what what's connoted by the word god in english so even the story of jacob wrestling with god he's wrestling with elohim but that does not mean he's wrestling with yahweh He's wrestling with a spiritual being. He understands that this is not a person. This is somebody from another realm. There's, there's some kind of 
divine encounter, but it doesn't has to have to be Jesus or mm. Yahweh in the flesh. It could be an angelic figure who's meeting him as God's representative. Um, but but we get caught up on the word God and then think everything that's God must be the one true God. And in fact, it's a bigger category. Mm. And, and to think that a mere mortal human could wrestle and even make it a wrestling match yeah, yeah. <laughs> against against actual God, you know, actually mm-hmm. against Yahweh himself could mm-hmm. could wrestle with him in the flesh and like, you know, God couldn't just, you know. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's part of the mystery of that story and the Abraham story where Abraham that you mentioned where Abraham is like pleading with God interceding for the city. Why mm-hmm. does God take the time to go back and forth with him like that? Yeah, uh, it's this mystery. It happens at Sinai too, where Moses is on the mountain pleading with God not to destroy the people. Like, how is it that the God of the universe actually is listening to humans and and letting humans in on his own deliberations? It's mm. baffling and mysterious and wonderful and scary. <laughs> yeah, and that's why Marty should be an open theist. And we'll end the conversation there, so Carmen doesn't <laughs> Carmen doesn't kick us off the call. Wow. <laughs> And now we'll, we'll wrap end that so we don't, <laughs> Carmen doesn't kick us off the call. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Well, Carmen, this has been awesome. Uh, yeah, thank thank you, you for uh, wrestling with these things. Thank you for helping us rethink the Old Testament. And yeah. um, I know it's going to help our, our listeners as well um, because it's it really is so important. And you've made it uh, – you've helped me reframe – how it is that I see the Old Testament. And I think that's huge because the story matters. So thank you for that. It does, it does. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been fun talking with you guys. Where? So we're gonna put this, your book, in the show Mm -hmm. notes so people can find it. And I've heard that you've had great success with it. IVP is continuously printing them, which is awesome. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. And so is there anywhere else you would like us to direct people, uh, like Um, to find you? I can give you my blog um, okay. to have point people to my blog for those sure. who are interested. I have like a frequently asked questions about the book that I've compiled answers to things people keep asking me by email. Um, and then we could probably link to my dissertation as well for those who are for the geekiest people in the audience. Sweet. Sounds so, good. Yeah. yeah. Geeks are yeah, fun. I'll, I'll send you those links. Okay. Sounds good. Fine. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. And as always, uh, listeners go caps. Go Blackhawks and I guess go Flames as well. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Peace.